Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. What I take from the 2016 election is that we continue to be the place that elected Barack Obama twice. We didn't stop being that America. But we are also the America that's capable of electing Donald Trump because we are all of those things at the same time. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the live podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years. And the next 40. All right. That sounded beautiful. In the last weeks, Donald Trump has repeatedly attacked Jeff Bezos and the two companies he owns or controls, Amazon and the Washington Post. The fake Washington News, he said, is used as a lobbyist and should so register. A lot of people have failed to see how dangerous this is or even welcomed the president's attacks. It's only tweets, some say. Amazon really does need to pay more taxes, others echo. But this misses the point. It's absolutely true that we need to have a serious conversation about how to regulate tech giants like Amazon, Facebook, and Google. And there's no doubt that liberals need to make the fight against crony capitalism a key part of their platform. That's not what this is about, for two reasons. First, Trump's attacks are politically dangerous. What he's doing is to use state tools to repress speech. And it's not just words. It's not just tweets. We've already seen the regulatory apparatus potentially punish one big company, Time Warner, the owner of CNN, that wanted to merge with AOL. And in a very unorthodox move, this wasn't permitted by the Department of Justice. There's a real danger that a lot of corporations and business owners might fall prey to what we might call in German, vorauseilender Gehorsam, anticipatory obedience. They don't know whether they're going to be punished for letting their newspapers, their television and radio stations criticize Donald Trump. And if they don't know that, it might be safer to sell those outlets to other owners or to pressure the journalists not to be too critical. This is something that people like Viktor Orban have done in Hungary, effectively making sure that private media stations are actually under the government's control. Secondly, I think Trump's attacks are actually economically dangerous as well. In the short run, a couple of attacks on Amazon are not going to make a big difference. Amazon's share price has not been very much affected so far, for example. But in the long run, we need the rule of law. We need to make sure that companies do well when they have a good business model, rather than when they're close to the president. We need to make sure that people who are close to power can't exploit those connections in order to extract bribes. And all of that is under threat when the president gives the impression that he's punishing some companies because he doesn't like them. In short, as I recently wrote in my Slate column, Trump's criticisms of Amazon are not meant to fight crony capitalism. They're meant to deepen crony capitalism and stifle freedom of speech by punishing a major media institution for the crime of criticizing the administration. And that is obviously very dangerous. 
But now it's my great pleasure to introduce today's guest, Cecilia Munoz. Cecilia is the Vice President of Public Interest Technology and Local Initiatives at New America, here where we're recording this live podcast. Before that, she served in senior positions in the Obama White House, first as the Director of Intergovernmental Affairs, and then as the Director of the White House Domestic Policy Council. She's also a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award. Welcome to the podcast, Cecilia. Thank you so much for having me. So, in your work at New America, you focus on the way in which technology can be deployed in the public interest. The stated goal is to connect technologists to public interest organizations, to improve services to vulnerable communities, and strengthen local organizations that serve them. There's obviously a lot that can be achieved through those kinds of technologies. Over the last weeks, I think we've also seen ways in which some technologies might be a little naive about the potential negative impact of our work, or they just don't have that much experience with how local communities actually work and how technology might intersect with those. So I guess I'm wondering, what are some of the cultural obstacles you see that stop Silicon Valley from using technology for the sort of very obvious positive impact it could have in your work here? So there's several ways to understand this, but it helps to give you, I think, a little bit of background on how I came to the work. So I come from the civil rights movement. I was at a Latino civil rights organization for 20 years and then worked in government. And while I was in government, we created something called the U.S. Digital Service, which was really an outgrowth of the experience we had with healthcare.gov breaking. We learned that government doesn't do this very well. The kinds of things that the Silicon Valley does all the time, government isn't particularly good at. So this was an effort to recruit people from the Silicon Valley to engage in helping the government do its work. And when that worked, it was really enormously transformative. And one of the insights that I took from that, that many of us took from that, was that the civic sector, the NGO sector, the world that I come from, needs this same capacity, that we're trying to solve the 21st century's problems with the same set of tools that we've been using for a long time at a moment when, you know, we're in the industrial revolution, technology is changing everything. So the idea is to harness the tools of technology, to put them in the hands of the people that we count on to address things like inequality and discrimination. And one of the big obstacles, I think there are really two, is that the NGO world, the sort of civic world, doesn't know what's possible, doesn't think in these terms, is maybe thinking about the dangers of technology, which are very real, but isn't necessarily thinking about how to harness technology and technologists, the people who do this kind of thinking, in order to do their work. So that's one obstacle. So when I talk to my friends in the NGO sector about this, they frequently think I mean IT, right? These are the people who are going to make sure my printers work. That's not what this is. This is a way of thinking and designing and engaging people in human-centered design and making sure that the work that we do is kind of powered through the kinds of tools and thinking that the Silicon Valley uses all the time. So that's one obstacle. And the second obstacle is that, and I mean this charitably, that the Silicon Valley is full of brilliant people who believe they have the tools to solve every problem. And maybe they do, but they don't always understand the problems that they're trying to solve. And very frequently, these are folks who don't know what they don't know. Now, I say this as a woman, as a person who comes out of the civil rights movement, people like me are not typical of the folks with training in the Silicon Valley. And those folks are less likely to know the kind of stuff that I've learned over decades in the civil rights movement. And so if you're trying to apply this set of, this amazing set of skills to solve the kinds of problems that, you know, the organizations I used to work with are trying to solve, you're going to miss stuff. And you could 
perpetuate problems. You could make them deeper, or you may just be missing opportunities to solve problems. So much of what we're trying to do is something that worked in government. So in the Domestic Policy Council, I got to sit at the intersection of these digital teams, the folks from the U.S. Digital Service, and their federal agencies. And when it was up to me to explain to folks at, say, the Department of Education why they should be sitting down with engineers and product developers in order to do their work, they didn't understand why I was asking them to do that. But if you put a problem on the table and set the really good policy people at the Department of Education to work on it with people from a terrific digital team, the results were really magical. What, what ended up happening is that it was like bringing a new set of tools to the exercise. And ultimately, the engineers in question and the policy people in question are problem solvers. And for each of those folks at the table, there was a new set of tools that they hadn't had access to before, and that combination turned out to be very powerful. We're trying to replicate that with NGOs, with local governments, and very importantly, in the policymaking process. So the impression I get when I speak to senior people in Silicon Valley, who I think often both are very inspiring and very intelligent, and in the way that they do, I think, care about the public good. But the thing that worries me is sort of twofold. First of all, that you know they have this approach of, well, you should just try a bunch of things and disrupt everything. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It doesn't matter, right? And that's true in the business world. The idea of capitalism is that it's okay for a company to try and do something. And if that fizzles, if that burns out, it doesn't really matter because another company will swoop in to sort of fill that gap, right? Well, in public policy, that's not the case, right? If you try something completely new with, you know, a school district and that goes badly wrong, well, then the kids who are in that school district are going to suffer the consequences of that for the whole lives. And the second thing that I sort of am struck by is the degree to which, you know, people in Silicon Valley and perhaps especially the people who are not sort of 21 right now, but who are 21 10 years ago, have just grown up with a self-conception that what we're doing, you know, all of the good things go together. We can go and make a ton of money, and at the same time, we're doing things that are amazing for the world, and they're fun to do, right? And now they have to start reconceptualizing themselves, saying, oh, perhaps some of the things we're doing can actually really have a negative impact on the world as well, even though we didn't intend that. And when I look at, you know, some of the senior leaders who have come under criticism in the last weeks and months, and the response to it, I really see them grappling with that. Like, I've seen them saying, wait, but I thought we were good guys. And I don't think they've quite understood the degree to which technology can have these negative impacts. So in your conversations, in your work, does that make you optimistic about the ability of people in Silicon Valley to sort of actually internalize and understand these two problems? Or do you think there's always going to be that cultural divide that, that, that actually is sort of unbridgeable? We can't afford to assume that there's going to always be a cultural divide. Because technology, whether you are excited by it or terrified by it, it is, right? It's happening. Our lives have already changed, and they're going to continue to change. So the question is kind of not whether it's sort of inherently good or bad or whether or not the Silicon Valley can adjust. Of course they can adjust. But the way I think of it is these tools are either... If your lens is inequality, which is very much how I think about things, they're either going to exacerbate inequality or they're going to imp uh, help move people closer together. That latter result isn't going to happen by itself. You have to be deliberate about it. You have to be trying to leverage these tools in order to address inequality. 
And the best way to do that, I think, is to make sure that the people who spend their lives working on that and making a difference in closing educational disparities or reducing disparities in the workforce, those people need to have access to these tools. They need to know how to leverage them. They need to know how to use them. And the folks who are expert in using those tools need to know what education reformers know, that we're going to be most successful in the kinds of change that we need to bring about if these worlds come together. And bringing those worlds together is very challenging, but that's the very thing we're trying to do. So one way to think about it is, and this is really an analogy developed by our CEO at New America, Anne-Marie Slaughter, we want to build a field of public interest technology the way there's a field of public interest law. You know, it wasn't always true that you could grow up and go to law school and go work for a human rights organization. We created that field deliberately. And now you can study public interest law in law school. That wasn't always true. And there are careers in public interest law. That wasn't always true. Right now, if you go to get a computer science degree or, you know, develop technological training in some way, it's not yet clear that you can go work for an organization that's trying to solve homelessness. But and if there's we, no easy path. You don't sort of know exactly how to do that, who to talk to, what kind of qualifications to get. Exactly. Yeah. There's no pathways yet, or there are a few pathways. Mm. And we've learned in the course of really in the first year of this public interest technology project and talking to people out in the world who are doing this work, we don't really have a great name for this field. They don't quite know how to find each other, except through really important organizations like Code for America, which gathers people in local brigades as well as at a summit every year. But it's still very much a field in the making. And that's, if we're successful, somebody in the next generation can grow up and become an engineer and go try to solve homelessness. That's the world that we're trying to create. So you said quite rightly that sort of some of the big disruptive effects of technology are already happening and are unstoppable and they're going to happen on their own. But that might actually deepen inequality in sure. some ways. The ways that technology might be used in order to address inequality, to solve social problems, that's not going to happen on its own. That's right. Because the sort of naive hope that I think people did have five or 10 years ago, that somehow every good social course will also have a business model attached to it that actually makes money, is probably wrong, right? So when you think about how do you make sure that technology is used for these positive ends, how do you see the sort of three main actors, business, government, and civil society, cooperating on yeah. that? How much of that will have to be done by civil society? How much of that will have to be done by government? In both cases, in the case, especially in the case of government and civil society, it's vital that you have people in policymaking roles doing this work that understand how to leverage these tools and understand how to identify problems, how to fix them. And importantly, this isn't just about preventing bad things from happening. It's also about leveraging these tools to reduce inequality, to promote equity, that these things can be harnessed for good. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. A colleague of mine at New America, Virginia Eubanks, has just published a book, and I'm embarrassed to say that I'm blanking on the name of it. But it is focusing on the way that technology is being used in public services in a way that's increasing inequities and is undercutting poor people. She's identified a problem correctly, and that's the kind of thing that we need to be able to spot and avoid and fix. At the same time, the city of New Orleans is using data and technology to identify what are the neighborhoods that are most likely to experience a deadly house fire. And by using data and technology, they devised the strategy that now the fire department is using 
they used to just do outreach to try to get people to get smoke detectors. Now they're using this data to say, oh, we can pinpoint where the deadliest fires are most likely to happen and go knock on those doors and make sure that they have smoke detectors. And within the first quarter of deploying that program, they saved lives. And the number of those kinds of deadly fires went down because they were able to use technology to solve a social problem. Both of those possibilities exist at the same time, but you need people in government who can spot the problems, harness the technology for solutions. Equally true for civil society. As you've heard me say, I come from the civil rights movement. We count on those organizations to recognize when there is a problem that is driving inequality, that's creating discrimination, that's undercutting communities of color, communities that are marginalized in some way. So if we expect the NAACP to be able to spot a problem when an algorithm is creating discrimination, they need to have that capacity. They need to have those tools. This needs to be part of their arsenal. And when we were creating this project, the example that I used with Anne-Marie, and we still haven't figured out how to do this yet, but I'm still sure of it, is that the way we're going to protect voting rights in the future is going to include the tools of litigation, which we're using now, but it's also going to include data and technology. We just haven't figured it out yet. But we have to if we're going to be effective in uh, addressing our public problems. So if I'm going to be sort of pessimistic or cynical for a moment, I fear that the ways in which technology will transform politics are sort of positive in all kinds of smaller and less systemic ways and negative in ways that actually really transform the nature of our political community, right? So some of the examples used right now are things like, you know, how can we use technology to solve homelessness? And I don't know exactly what you have in mind, there, but I could imagine, for example, uh, all kinds of ways in which the allocation of empty beds and shelters to people who need them is, is improved and made more efficient and so on. And that would make a tremendous contribution. I mean, any night that somebody spends in a shelter rather than on the street is a tremendous achievement. But at the same time, I wonder whether the negative effects are much more systematic so that people don't talk across the divide with each other. They actually wind up in these echo chambers. It's much easier to spread fake news, to incite hatred against outsiders and so on. And so perhaps a systematic effect might end up being that people are less willing to fund shelters for homeless people because they think, oh, these are all sort of people who aren't ethnically like me anyway, or they're all, you know, lazy or whatever mm -hmm. sort of myths might come about there. And so you have on the one side tech sort of helping to manage a dwindling supply of beds in these shelters. And on the other hand, you have technology actually augmenting a political attack on the kind of uh, cooperation across racial and ethnic and so on lines we need in society and on the provision of the welfare state that we need to actually solve those problems. Yeah. All of those outcomes are possible. I mean, I think that's the point, right? And at some level, to take sort of what's most in the news now, at some level, the people who get there first, who figure out how to leverage the technology to accomplish their goals, are going to, at least in the short term, are going to win the day. And, you know, that may be a shorthand way of describing what just happened with the interference with our election. So these tools are there. They're not going anywhere and they're going to get leveraged. It's really important for the actors of civil society who worry about these things, whose job is to both protect free speech, but also protect equality of opportunity in this country, to be able to leverage the same tools and to be able to problem spot and not just, again, to prevent bad things from happening, but to be moving first and fastest at leveraging these tools to actually accomplish our common goals. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So to shift gears a little bit, your work on the domestic policy council is obviously highly relevant to this populist moment. So I guess, first of all, I was wondering how you see the set of issues that you covered there which you know included everything from from immigration to other kinds of challenges, like say some of the difficulties faced by rural communities and so on, as connected to the rise of populism and the election of Donald Trump. How do you think that sort of long-standing failures in domestic policy may have contributed to the rise of populism, you know, in the United States, but also across other countries in North America and Western Europe? Well, I think you can draw a line right through the sort of economic inequalities that have been developing over decades and this populist moment in which we find ourselves. And, you know, I worked for President Obama. He talked about this all the time, that we were really dealing with decades of ways in which the middle class was getting squeezed, decades of ways in which we were becoming the first generation to worry that our kids weren't going to be able to surpass us economically. And having arrived at that point, and this is really a a fresh moment of arriving at that point, you know, it is not inconsistent with history and all parts of the Western world, that that creates tensions between groups. It makes us kind of more tribal, more divided, more likely to believe that even as I struggle to make sure my kids can successfully make it to the middle class, that I'm going to worry that somebody else is getting over or is getting support or getting help that I'm not getting. That kind of tension is always there, but it's exacerbated by really decades of ways in which the middle class is getting squeezed. And we are feeling the effects of that politically now. Let me jump in there because I think it's an interesting, I would love to get your perspective on this. I mean, some people sort of try to play off the economic cause of populism and the more sort of cultural cause of populism against each other, right? Mm-hmm. And they say that, you know, really it's not about the economic causes because, say, it's not true that poorer people voted for Donald Trump in higher numbers than wealthier people. And there's a sort of much stronger correlation between the kinds of attitudes people have about immigration and so on. How do you see those two things intersecting? Or how do you see the relative weight of them from your point? Yeah, I think they're related. So my area of deepest expertise is immigration policy. That's what I've been working on the most and the longest over 30 years. You know, you can follow the trend lines really closely over decades. When we get economically insecure is when xenophobia most takes hold. And we are most able to reform our laws in ways which are generous when we're feeling pretty confident economically. And When we are in moments of demographic change, and at some level in the United States, when are we not in a moment Mm. of demographic change? I mean, this is the story of being an immigrant nation. We're always a little uncomfortable with who's coming. And sometimes we, at, at various points in our history, we have ratcheted down on who comes. You know, the Great Depression is one such period, for example. I mean, those trend lines follow each other. Are there are economic insecurities and our desire to control immigration? The fact of the matter is one of the quickest ways to get to economic growth, certainly in this day and age, is actually to expand the number of people who come legally as immigrants. But does, it's a does, really does that, hard thing to does persuade. Does that actually the sort of, of increase people's living standards or does it increase yes. economic growth? Because those are two slightly different things, well, right? It, it's true it does that both of those things. How does it go beyond just, you know, obviously you have 
I many more people in the country and those people, you know, have to earn a living. And so they sort of add a little bit, of, bit to economic growth. How does it actually help economic growth on the aggregate? The job creating impact of immigrants is really well documented. So you see large indicators of growth like GDP and reduction in the deficit. And if you look at the numbers, for example, of what the Congressional Budget Office said would be the results of the immigration bill that we tried to pass in 2013, you saw enormous increases in GDP reduction in the deficit, but also some modest growth in the number of jobs and growth in wages. So in, in the short term, it's a really effective tool for economic growth that actually can be felt across the the economic spectrum. But my point is that it's really hard to persuade people of that. It's hard to move people off of this notion that for each person that comes in, that must mean one less job for a person here. And those concerns are exacerbated by two things. And this is the intersection of the question you asked. They are exacerbated by people's economic fears. Maybe if I'm worried that my kids aren't going to get ahead, maybe immigrants are the problem here. And they're exacerbated by people's cultural fears. Both of those things can exist side by side at the same time. So I'm Latina. The 2000 census is the census that showed that we became the largest minority in the country. That's significant demographic change. Mm. Um, and we, no matter who the group was, we have always reckoned with that and struggled with that, dating back to Benjamin Franklin being worried that we were all going to end up being a German-speaking people. He had that concern. And, yeah, and being concerned that Germans would never integrate and are terrible for democracy. As somebody who grew up in Germany, I sort of think he's right. But um, <laughs> the, um, I, I want to bring out two slightly different uh, things that I'm struggling to think about in the immigration space. The first is where you would draw the line between opinions that you find to be wrong or even, you know, unpleasant and views that you find to be illegitimate. So which views on immigration will you say, you know, I really disagree with this. You know, I think having more people come in is good for economic growth and, and these people don't think that and that's wrong. But you know what, they're entitled to the opinion. That's a perfectly normal part of a political process. Yeah. At what point do you think a set of ideas about immigration actually starts to deny basic American principles, including the idea that you can't accord rights on the basis of ethnicity or religion and so yeah. on, right? So that's yeah. one kind of thing that I want to get at in this conversation. The other thing is the distinction between what do you think your favorite policy is if we could ev get everybody to, do, to agree yeah. versus what is the policy that we should adopt given that we know how strong a driver of populism immigration appears to be. So let's take these sort of one after the other. So where would you say, hey, I really disagree with you on immigration, but absolutely that's a fair opinion. You know, you should be allowed to state that proudly in public without being fearful that people will call you a racist or a danger to democracy or anything like yeah. that. Uh, versus where do you say, no, 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 this now gets into the territory where really that shouldn't be part of our public sphere? Yeah. It's reasonable to have a debate about what the levels of immigration should be. I mean, in some ways, not only is it reasonable, we should be having a debate about what the levels should be, right? And that's the Congress's job. And as owners of this democracy, that's our job as a public is to have a conversation and hopefully reach a consensus on how many people we should allow into the United States and who those people should be. Completely legitimate, and there is room for a diversity of views on that question. Hopefully, that debate would be driven by economic evidence, but that is, I think, a proper basis for debate, and I have a clear perspective, but it's not unreasonable for somebody to have a different perspective. Where I think we get into illegitimate territory is when you start demonizing people on the basis of their immigrant characteristics. 
so we conflate, and especially in this moment, we have a president who is conflating people who are foreign, people who are religion that we may feel uncomfortable with, right? Even Muslims in particular, he's demonizing. He is characterizing young immigrants as gang members and suggesting that immigrants are responsible for crime when, they, when the evidence is really very clear that in communities, as immigration increases, crime actually goes down. And border communities in this country have some of the lowest crime rates anywhere in the country. So by demonizing the, the human beings that we're talking about in ways which are have no basis in reality, he's seeking to use I mean, I don't even, I didn't even know how to describe it. He's essentially demonizing people in order to accomplish a political objective in a way which is harmful. People get hurt as a result of that. So individuals get hurt, whole communities get hurt, and the larger public is hurt. When you have entire segments of the community, as we have now, who are afraid to contact civic authorities when they've been witnesses to a crime, victims of a crime, when they see a public safety hazard... That doesn't just affect them, right? That affects everybody. We, we have created that kind of climate of fear and division in a way which is fundamentally hurtful, not just to immigrants, but to all of us, but also fundamentally undercuts who we are as a nation of immigrants. So I sort of 99% agree with what you just said. You know, I think there's a very clear distinction between saying, you know, we should have a lot less immigration, even we should have a lot less family-based immigration. I think all of that are things that I don't necessarily agree with, but they're legitimate yeah. democratic preferences, and we should treat them as things to be fought out in the democratic sphere by human selections, right? It's very different to say about a judge of Mexican heritage that she's not really American. It's very different to say an entire class of people, anybody who happens to be Muslim, can't come into this country. Right, Those are saying that people of Latino heritage or people who are Muslim can never truly be American. And that's a much more fundamental violation of, of the founding principles of this country. Yes. I, I want to push you on one point. And let's leave Trump to a side because I think it's very difficult to construe what he says on any of this in, in, in any way sympathetically. But for example, in Europe, you know, people have fears about, well, some of these Syrian refugees coming in, you know, how do we know they're not terrorists? Yeah. Now, Obviously, the majority of people who are coming in are fleeing for their lives in very obvious and real danger. And often the people who make this point don't want to acknowledge that. And, and that's terrible demagoguery and, and should be condemned. At the same time, sort of the response that, that I'm tempted to give, and a lot of people who are sort of on the left side of the political spectrum attempt to give, of saying, well, just raising those kind of security fears is in itself illegitimate seems to me to overstep the mark in a certain kind of way as well. Because, of course, we have seen a few isolated incidents in which people who did come in as refugees officially ended up committing terrorist attacks. And I can see how a population that feels like, well, we're not really in, in, in a position to vet them and so on. How do we know that these terrorist organizations aren't going to exploit that process precisely in order to, to send people here? That doesn't seem to me to be sort of from the start, illegitimate, yeah. right? And, and and I wonder whether there's a certain parallel, you know, to security concerns in the United States. Now, I agree that all of the evidence shows that immigrants commit crimes at a much lower rate and so on. So to say that in general, immigrants are criminals, as Donald Trump has said, is not just completely off the mark factually, but also morally disturbing, disgusting. But I can see how people might say, well, look, I mean, you know, there are gangs that are operating, 
if we have a relatively porous border, how do we know that gangs aren't exploiting this? So how, up to which point is that a part of a legitimate political discourse and where does that cross the line? Well, so look, the fundamental kind of, at some level, baseline job of a government is the safety and security of its people. That is a reasonable subject for conversation. But it's really important for that conversation to be held on the basis of facts and logic and legitimate information as opposed to emotion and especially demagoguery, right? So while on its face, at some level, it's reasonable and and maybe even important to have the conversation if someone is going to start from the emotional place and say, like, is it okay to be admitting people from Syria because some of them might be terrorists? You have to break that down and assess why it is someone would start from that impression because, of course, these are people who are fleeing the very thing that we fear, And certainly I can speak to the United States. I'm more familiar with our processes here. But the refugees that we admit to the United States are are more vetted than anybody else. So the likelihood of a problem is lower than it is for the general population. Well, so refugees are vetted very strongly in the United States. Yes. They're not vetted very strongly. In, in I mean, it's more difficult now to get across the border, but right. they certainly weren't vetted a couple of years ago when a lot of people came into Germany and other countries in Europe right. very quickly. And of course, it is true that there's people coming across the border to Mexico and the United States who are not vetted as well. Right? Yeah. But I guess what I'm saying is it's not illegitimate to have the conversation. It, it, at some level, of course, that's where a conversation happens. But what's tremendously important is to give civil society the tools to have that conversation with some degree of fact and to move the conversation away from the realm of fear and emotion and especially demonization and demagoguery, because you just can't make good policy that way. That metaphor may not quite work, but in a way that harkens back to what I was saying in my take at the beginning of a podcast, which is to say that, you know, you can condemn the way that Donald Trump has attacked Amazon as being, you know, motivated by the wrong thing, signaling the wrong thing, being very dangerous. But that doesn't mean that you can't think that there are some real issues with the way that Amazon is regulated at the moment, right? And in the way, I think you're right, that the way that Donald Trump talks, for example, about the problem posed by some Central American gangs is not factual, demagogic, and very dangerous, which doesn't mean that you can't have, you know, a different kind of conversation. Well, yes, and shutting down conversation, even when the conversation is on the edge of decency, is a dangerous thing in a democracy. You know, at the, at the end of the day, and I, I think of, so I'm from, I'm from Michigan. I'm from the Midwest. I think of the neighbors around my, where my dad lives. He lives in the house I grew up in. I, my head frequently goes to, uh, how would I carry out this conversation with these people that I grew up with that I love but have very different views than I do? At the end of the day, we're all participants in this democracy, and we have to If they wake up in the morning with a fear about somebody with a name like mine, it's important for me to be able to engage the conversation, and it's important for me not to shut it down because I miss an opportunity to educate, explain, and hopefully bring that person to a different place. I think it's important on the left, and it's important if you're communities of color, much as it is painful to hear what we're hearing every day. And I say this knowing that if my daughters were sitting here, they would disagree with me fiercely. Hmm. I believe it's really important to be able to allow the conversation to happen and to carry it out and to frankly model the kind of respectful behavior that we're hoping to generate. I think that I have more hope for our capacity as a democracy if we are able to do that 
and less hope if we are not. That seems absolutely right to me. I want to turn to the sort of second half of the thing that I'm sort of trying to think through, which is one set of questions is if you just care about economic growth, about all of those kinds of things, what sort of policies on immigration should you institute? Another question is sort of like, to what degree should we take into account the willingness of parts of the population to carry those policies, right? And if we institute a policy that we think both morally and economically and so on is the right policy, that it leads, let's say, to Donald Trump getting re-elected or getting elected in the first place, then that's going to have terrible downstream consequences, including terrible downstream consequences for some of the most vulnerable communities in the country. So, you know, now the fear here is that we're going to sort of allow our policy preferences to be pushed down towards things that we really don't like just by sort of a fear of political retaliation, right? So it's tempting to say, let's not overthink this and just go for the policies we want because they seem to us to be right. But of course, on the other side, if we do that, and it does mean that authoritarian populists have an easier way dismantling our democracies or have an easier way gathering up public anger and directing that against minorities, it seems to be irresponsible to not take that into account. So help me make sense of my dilemma here. Yeah. The short-term answer, which is I recognize a cheap answer, is that the likelihood of policy getting made in the short term is really low. Oh, sure. Of course. I mean, right? I, so I mean my hope for the next couple of years yeah. is uh, limited. But that's right. But that what that suggests, though, is that it's important to develop strategies that are looking at the at a longer time horizon. And this is an incredibly difficult thing to do right now because, you know, for everybody I know in the advocacy world, like everything is on fire and everybody is engaged in firefighting. So it's really hard when you are putting out fires right in front of you to be thinking about, you know, how are we setting up for two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. But I also think it's vital to be having those conversations and to figure out how to take this moment, and there are tools available this moment, in some ways tools that haven't been available before. Like I've been fighting against white supremacists my whole career, but lots of people who didn't believe me when I talked about them 10 years ago can see them now. That's a tool. So one question for advocates is how do we use the tools of this horrifying moment to get to a different place where policy can be made that actually reflects who we are and our values and our economic needs. And one of the things that would obviously help immensely, and I agree with you that the prospect for that in the next couple of years uh, are not worth um, pondering too, too, too long, is some kind of form of comprehensive immigration reform. Now, I've heard some accounts, and you were obviously you know, deeply involved in these things, so you'll, you might just disagree with the premise. But I've heard some accounts that suggested that we might have been able to get some form of comprehensive immigration reform in the second half of Obama's presidency if Democrats had been willing to accept no road to citizenship. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those cases where I find myself to be really torn. Yeah. Because on the one hand, I think that people who have lived in this country for a very long time, who contribute economically and so on, deserve a path to citizenship. That is especially true of people who were brought to the country as children mm -hmm. and didn't in any way make a choice in the matter. On the other hand, I also think that, you know, the difference between being undocumented and having a green card is much, much bigger than the difference between having a green card and being a citizen. Yeah. And when you add to that the sort of political fallout, that, you know, this issue being unresolved and festering politically 
is so poisonous. You know, I wonder whether Democrats should be willing to accept immigration reform that doesn't include a path to citizenship if they get, you know, a secure legal status for a very large number of people and if they sort of manage to take the issue of immigration off the political table for a while because people feel like it's been dealt with. So I am certain that that's not why we didn't get an immigration reform and that had Democrats put that on the table, we would have faced the same obstacle that we faced. So remember that a bipartisan bill passed the Senate with 68 votes. That included reforms to the family immigration system, some kind of merit-based immigration, as well as a long 15-year path to citizenship for undocumented people with strong bipartisan support. The reason it didn't get through the House was not because the Democrats failed to dangle this incentive to the Republicans. The reason it didn't happen in the House was because the Republicans were unwilling to have the debate in the first place. Right, The speaker was unwilling to bring anything to the floor. So we can debate what should have happened had there been a deal space to try to get something through, but there never was. And that's ultimately the, the obstacle here is not really a substantive obstacle. It's a political obstacle. And that obstacle really is that on the Republican side, there is a very loud and at the moment ascendant minority which doesn't want to have this conversation unless it's about walls and throwing people out and, and shutting the whole thing down. That's the obstacle. That's why John Boehner would not bring, ultimately bring any bill of any kind to the floor. So at some level, I wouldn't mind living in a world where we had that dilemma and we could have that debate, but we're not in that world because the, the Republicans don't have a path forward to fixing this without igniting a lot of yelling from people that right now they don't want to incite. That's a fair response. I find myself struggling to make sense of whether the election of Donald Trump is the first step towards a slide of democracy towards a form of overtime populism as we see it in countries like Hungary, or whether it is sort of a moment that we can overcome and go back to. I don't want you to answer that question, which you know is a large question that I think about all the time, but a smaller subset of that, on which actually my instinct is a little bit more positive than on the, a little bit more optimistic than on the overall question, which is... You know, when you think about the story of America's slow, complicated journey towards an equal multi-ethnic society, are we now at a turning point at which we really go back in time? Or is this a sort of short rebellion that'll fade? And on that, I guess my instinct is actually a little bit more optimistic than it is on the political side, in part because, you know, it does seem to me like it's better being a member of virtually any ethnic, religious, sexual minority today than 20 or 40 or 60 years ago. Not perhaps than two years ago. Yeah. But certainly compared to 20 or 40 or 60 years ago. When I compare our situation to that in Europe, it seems to me that the bottom line acceptance of the idea that an American can be brown or black, an American can be uh, Hindu or Muslim or Jewish is much deeper than it is in, in other democracies. So I still sort of retain this faith of uh, an immigrant to this country, but we might be able to overcome that. And at the same time, you see some of the anger in our politics and you see how effectively Donald Trump has weaponized anger against minorities and fears over immigration. And perhaps it starts to look naive. So yeah. I just wanted to get your sort of wide angle view on this. Well, I agree with your optimism. And I think that 
this last election is no more a turning point than the election of Barack Obama was. Right? We thought we had kind of arrived and there was no going back. That was clearly not true. I don't think it's true this time either. But what I take from the 2016 election is that we continue to be the place that elected Barack Obama twice. We didn't stop being that America. But we are also the America that's capable of electing Donald Trump and the same country that enslaved people and interned Japanese Americans and committed genocide against Native Americans. We are all of those things at the same time. And we, we don't ever stop being that thing because we do something great, as I believe we did when we elected President Obama twice, or do something deeply terrible, as we did with this election. We have all of those currents, and our job as owners of this democracy is to bring our best selves to that and fight for what we know we are capable of. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Cecilia. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter, have The Good Fight tattooed on the 10 knuckles of your two hands. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.